Let's uh, focus now on our scripture. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they also had John, John Mark, as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Barjesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We praise you for your great goodness. We praise you that you have reached out to humanity in the person of the Lord Jesus, who we are here to worship this day and to hear more about what you have done. We praise and honor you. We ask, Lord, that you would lead Tom as he teaches and may you be praised forever. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning, guys. Uh, I, have, I have missed you, I mean, from this perspective. <laughs> uh, I have delighted in listening to uh, the messages from David Dean and from our brother Phil and, uh, of course, from Ron last week. And I have been blessed and encouraged and challenged through all of that teaching. We have a... This church has been blessed with a wealth of men who are able to teach and gifted to teach. And that's a rare thing. Uh, we should be very grateful to God. Um, we pick up our study in the book of Acts this morning at a chapter that marks a hugely important transition in the book. Luke's narrative of the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul begins here. And it continues throughout all of the remaining 15 chapters of the book of Acts. But before we launch into the first missionary journey, we would do well to consider 
how unexpected it certainly was to Paul or to anyone else except God that Paul would have such an instrumental role in all of the events that are recorded in the remainder of this book. And in order to, to kind of consider that a little, a little uh, in, in its proper context, we need to back up some and come back in the first chapter of Acts and look from the beginning at a, kind of a quick review of what the Holy Spirit has been doing uh, throughout this amazing book. In the first chapter, just before the resurrected Jesus ascended into the clouds to return back to his rightful glory at his Father's right hand, he gave his redeemed saints an assignment that is still in effect today. He said to them in Acts 1 verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now in the very next chapter, chapter 2, he fulfilled his promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his followers, his disciples. Uh, at the time when the city of Jerusalem was filled to overflowing with people from all over, Jews and, and God-fearers from all over the Roman Empire who had come into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples of Jesus and they spoke, each of them spoke in languages that they had never learned, they did not know. So the, the result was that every single person in that enormous crowd got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in his or her own native language. It was an astonishing and unprecedented miracle. Peter then delivered in that same chapter a magnificent sermon proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, whom the Jews had just crucified by the hands of godless Romans, was the very one whose coming... The Old Testament prophets had foretold over and over for many generations. Peter declared that their crucifixion of Jesus had been by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's doing. And then he ended his sermon with an uncompromising call to repentance, a call to turn to Jesus. And after that sermon, 3,000 people came to trust in Jesus Christ in that single day. The tiny flame that was the church of Jesus Christ had instantly become a wildfire. And that wildfire was about to spread throughout the known world. Not long after that great event, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the newborn church in Jerusalem, was stoned to death by the Jews because he called them to turn to Jesus in humble repentance and faith just as Peter had. Stephen's public execution was the opening salvo of a very harsh persecution against the church of Jesus Christ by the Jews. Persecution that had, had the temple in Jerusalem as, as its home base and that had a man named Saul of Tarsus as the tip of its sword of persecution, a zealous young Pharisee named Saul. Saul's hatred of Christ and of the people of Christ had no bounds. Because of that persecution that began in Jerusalem, the saints in that first ever local church were scattered. 
And that scattering also was the work of God. Okay? The crucifixion of Jesus was, the, was God's doing. Even though men were accountable for their part in that greatest injustice ever perpetrated by human beings, it was God's doing. And now, the persecution against the church is used by God to spread the gospel to more people so that more will be saved, more people in more places. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said that, that as his church, his people would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, and then in Judea, which is the region in which Jerusalem resided, and then in Samaria, the region north of Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. So there are four phases, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the world. God has always used opposition against Christ to save more people in more places. I, I, I couldn't help, every time I look, look at these things, I can't help always going back to, to Joseph's statements in Genesis 48 and 50, or 45 and 50, I guess. He, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's our God. He is sovereign over all. Now, in chapter 10 and in the first part of chapter 11, God made it crystal clear to Peter and through Peter to the rest of the Jewish saints, saints at Jerusalem that Jews and Gentiles, two categories of mankind that had been sharply and angrily divided for countless generations, had now been made one only through faith in and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a miraculous work that neither group expected, neither Jew nor Gentile, even though God had actually clearly foretold it through his prophets over and over in the Old Testament. That's chapter 10. Then in the latter part of chapter 11, the Holy Spirit began to set the stage for the fourth and final phase of Christ's agenda for reaching the world. The, the persecution under Saul, uh, dr driven by Saul, had already propelled or scattered Christians throughout Judea and Samaria. Now they're going to start going beyond that point. That final, that fourth and final phase is still underway today. We're in it. The Holy Spirit set the stage for that final phase of the advance of the gospel by creating and building up a local church in the mostly Gentile city of Antioch of Syria. Now, there are two Antiochs on these maps. One is Pisidian Antioch up here in Asia Minor. The other is Antioch of Syria, and that's the one that's at focus here. This is a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It was a mostly Gentile city, and it was a port city, and it was an important city. We saw when we looked at Corinth that that Port cities throughout the, the Roman Empire uh, tended to be, you know, was, they tended to be uh, cosmopolitan with lots of different kinds of people, and they tended to be very wealthy relative to other cities, and they tended to have all kinds of 
bizarre religious practices. <laughs> all, all these things were true also in Antioch. Antioch was outside the Jewish homeland of Palestine. And of course, I should point out it's not exactly on the coast, but it was functionally a coastal city because it was just spitting distance from the coast. Now, now the stage was set for phase four. For believers in, Jew, in Jesus Christ from all walks of life, the Holy Spirit had made it very clear that the church of Jesus Christ was not a Jewish thing. It was a Jesus thing. The long-promised king of kings, whom the prophets had said would forever rule over all the nations of the earth, not only over Israel, had now created his base of operations for the spread of the gospel to every kind of people in every place on earth. We learn in the first chapter, uh, first verse of chapter 13, where we are this morning, that the Holy Spirit had raised up a heterogeneous group of leaders in the heterogeneous local church that he had created in Antioch. Merriam-Webster's dictionary says the word heterogeneous means consisting of dissimilar or diverse parts or constituents. Luke mentions five men who were prophets and teachers in that church at Antioch. He doesn't tell us which men were prophets and which were teachers, but these five men were all leaders in the community of the saints in the city of Antioch. The first man mentioned is Barnabas, and he has already had kind of a history in Acts. I'm not going to review all of it, but he's well known. The second man mentioned is a black man. His name was Simeon, but his other name was Niger. And names in that era and in that culture meant something. A name told you something about the individual. And the word Niger means black. Now, it's quite possible that the third man, Lucius, was also a black man. He was from Cyrene, a Roman province on the northern coast of Africa that was predominantly populated by black people. The fourth leader of the Antioch church that Luke mentions is Menaean. And there's an interesting thing related to this guy. Luke points out that Menaean had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. These are just two of the, the four Herods mentioned in the Bible, but that second one, Herod Antipas, that's this guy, Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, now, when it says he had been brought up, Menaean had been brought up with him, that, that wording is used of a foster brother or of someone who actually grew up in the same household as another person. Herod the Tetrarch had been the ruler of Galilee during Jesus' day. He's the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. He's the same Herod to whom Pontius Pilate had tried unsuccessfully to hand off the determination of Jesus' fate after Jesus' arrest. Herod just handed him back to Pontius Pilate. <laughs> Luke's inclusion of this little notation about Menaean is yet another reminder that the reach of the gospel has no earthly boundaries. The last man mentioned among the leaders in the church at Antioch is Saul. Barnabas is the first, Saul is the last. And this is the same Saul, of course, who had spearheaded the fierce persecution against the church. In chapter 9 of this book, the resurrected Jesus had blasted Saul, had blinded him, 
and turned his heart in an instant. And now Saul is he's one of the leaders in the church at Antioch. And, of course, there's more backstory, but we don't have time to go into all of it. But in Acts 9, the first time that Saul came to Jerusalem after that miraculous conversion, it had been Barnabas... It had been Barnabas who had intervened to convince the other leaders at the Jerusalem church that Saul was no longer an enemy of the gospel, but he was a co-worker for the gospel. That took some convincing. In Acts chapter 11, after the elders of the Jerusalem church had sent Barnabas to build up the, the brand new church in the city of Antioch, it had been Barnabas who had sought out Saul and brought him to Antioch to help nurture and build up that church. So Barnabas and Saul had quite a relationship by this point. At the very end of chapter 11, the believers at Antioch sent Barnabas together with Saul to take much-needed gifts of money from the, the believers in Antioch to the church, the heavily persecuted church in the city of Jerusalem, where all this persecution had started. The last verse of chapter 12 tells us that Barnabas and Saul had now returned to Antioch, having finished that mission to take that money to Jerusalem. And when they returned, they returned with a man who was there, a helper to them, and that was John Mark. This is the Mark who wrote the second, the second gospel of the New Testament. Uh, third gospel, Matthew, Mark, uh, second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I do know this. I really do. <laughs> I learned that when I was a baby. I, w I wasn't even a Christian when I learned that. Now, finally, here in chapter 13, we see Saul singled out by the Holy Spirit together with Barnabas to be sent by the church at Antioch as Christ's chosen agents to begin taking the gospel to the world, the rest of the world. Their assignment was not in any way determined by men. It was commanded by the Holy Spirit. And I don't want us to miss what was going on in the church at the time that, that the Holy Spirit revealed this to these saints. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It says, While they, the saints in Antioch, were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. Now the phrase ministering to the Lord is priestly language. It speaks of, of men working together to direct the attention of God's people to God. It speaks of very deliberate and focused worship of the one true God as a community. Now, these saints at Antioch were immersed in the worship of God, and they were fasting, a behavior that Isaiah 58 characterizes as setting aside all earthly pleasures and pursuits to focus one's attention and affection and honor toward God alone. And we must not miss this, that it was at that time and in that context that the Holy Spirit gave that church this very clear assignment, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which, to which I 
have called them. And those saints, by the way, continued fasting until they had done what the Holy Spirit commanded. It was as if they had resolved not to eat until they had obeyed the clear instruction and direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll notice that God did not wait for this community of believers to come up with a great game plan for spreading the gospel into the world. And he didn't wait for them to decide who would be best suited to launch that task. Instead, it was at a time when these saints had set aside everything else to come to the throne of God's grace and offer up honor and praise to him together with one another. That's when God revealed this world-changing assignment. It was at the time that God had primed their hearts to be ready to follow his direction that he revealed that direction to them. And this, this in itself is an important lesson from this passage, guys. If you and I want to be primed to follow God's lead when he gives it, we need to make sure that the humble and deliberate and devout worship and exaltation of God is at the very top of our list of activities. And that applies both individually and it applies corporately as a church. If this church wants to be primed and ready to follow God's lead, we need to be all about the worship and exaltation of our God. It's not our methodology. It's not our wonderful plan that's going to put us on the track that God intends. It is our hearts that are devoted to our God. And by the way, fasting is a great way to get into that mode. And I... I was reminded as I was going through this that most of the times that fasting is mentioned in the New Testament, it is a corporate observance, a corporate practice, not an individual practice. doesn't mean you don't do it individually. You can't fast corporate. I can't fast for you. <laughs> and they says, darn. <laughs> All right. Most conservative Bible scholars place the timing of Saul's conversion around A.D. 34, within the first year after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But check this out. Most of those same scholars place the events in this chapter around A.D. 46 to 47. That means there were roughly 12 or 13 years that transpired between the time of Saul's conversion and the beginning of his missionary journeys. Any of you who, who believes that God has, God has led you, he has directed you into missions, this is kind of stunning, isn't it? And there's one prior event that we also ought to have firmly in mind here. More than a decade before this point, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and blinded him to make him see, Jesus told a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and no doubt Saul himself, that Saul would bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now, can you imagine being very clearly and very explicitly called by the living God to go to the mission field and then having to wait 13 years before you actually get to go? Sometimes God moves very quickly. In fact, 
sometimes much more quickly than we would prefer. Sometimes he moves much more slowly than we would prefer. But God intends us to be good with either of those timelines, and he intends for us to follow his lead, not to take that lead into our own hands. We are to always trust God to do the moving and the steering. And so what are we to do when we are waiting? Well, we are to diligently do whatever task God has filled our hands to do now. And if you're not sure what that is, just spend some time in the Word and look at what God has told all of us to do and start doing that. It'll keep you busy, let me tell you. And if that's what you're doing, beloved, and you have a heart of worship toward, toward God, He is going to steer and move you. And you don't have to worry about it. He is going to direct your steps. <laughs> that's what He does. <laughs> all right. In verse 4, of chapter 13, the two sent ones, Barnabas and Saul, get to work. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they went, they sailed to Cyprus. They sailed to Cyprus, and they, so they came from Antioch, and they set sail about 250 miles south-southwest of Antioch to this island called Cyprus, and they landed on the east coast at Salamis, and then they traversed the island all the way to the westernmost port of Paphos, which was the biggest port on the, on the island. And Luke tells us that as they traveled across the island, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews in every city. And that's important because that becomes an exceedingly, exceedingly consistent pattern with the Apostle Paul throughout the entire rest of the book of Acts. Every time he sets foot in a new city, the first place he goes is the synagogues, and he goes there to talk about Jesus. The John, who, the man named John who went with uh, Barnabas and Saul here as their helper is, again, the John, uh, he is John Mark. He is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. In Paphos, Luke tells us that they came across a Jew named Bar-Jesus, who was an associate and an advisor to the governor of the whole island, the proconsul appointed by Caesar, named Sergius Paulus. Luke tells us that Sergius Paulus was, quote, a man of intelligence. When Sergius Paulus heard that Paul and Silas were teaching in the synagogue, he summoned them to come and appear before him because he wanted to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. This was a man of intellect and a man of honor who earnestly wanted to hear what Barnabas and Saul had to say about Jesus. This is the kind of opportunity for sharing the gospel that every believer just dreams that will be dropped in his lap, right? Someone whose heart is already primed and they want to know. <laughs> Tell me the gospel. But Luke tells us that Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas, this advisor to the proconsul was also, he was a Jew, but he was also a false prophet. He says he was a magician. That doesn't mean that he did illusion, he, he did tricks of illusion for people to entertain them. That's not what this means. It means he was a sorcerer. 
His fame and his fortune and his influence on this Roman official were dependent on the help of demonic powers. Verse 8 tells us that this false prophet, whose name Bar-Jesus means son of Yahweh saves, made it his mission to turn the proconsul away from the truth. Pretty hard to miss the irony here in his name. Verse 9 says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon Bar-Jesus. I wish I had a picture of Saul's face from that particular moment. I don't know what that gaze looked like, but I'll bet it was very intense. Now, this is the first time in the book of Acts, a little aside here, this is the first time in the book of Acts, in verse 9, that Saul is called Paul. And it is the last time that anyone else in the book refers to him as Saul. Before this point, every single time that Barnabas and Saul were mentioned together, Barnabas was always mentioned first. Throughout the rest of chapter 13, after verse 9, Every time the two men are mentioned together, it's Paul and Barnabas. And from this point forward in the book of Acts, Paul is mentioned 126 times, and Barnabas is mentioned 16 times. Folks, that's supposed to get our attention. We're supposed to recognize that something just changed. Saul was Paul's Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name, his Gentile name, the name by which Gentiles, including Roman authorities, would have called him. And Paul is going to have a lot of dealings with both Gentiles and Roman authorities throughout the rest of this book. This very decisive transition in the name that Luke applies to Paul helps drive home the, the point that, that Christ's agenda to spread the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth has now shifted into its final phase. It's moving into the world, out of the Jewish stronghold and into the world. And the primary instrument of the advance of the gospel to the rest of the world in that generation is this man who had once been the single most militant enemy of Jesus that anybody knew. This man that Christ's own apostles had been so reluctant even to accept as a brother in Christ, this man who had been a relatively unimportant player in the advance of the gospel for more than a decade after his conversion, this man who had just been, who had just been mentioned last in the list of leaders of the church of Antioch, this is the man whom Jesus had chosen to play what is arguably the most influential role in the spread of the gospel on earth of any human being in history. Does God do what we expect? No. In fact, he seems to delight in doing the opposite of what we expect. What makes all of this so important is precisely that it was so unexpected. None of this is about Paul's merit or qualification to take on this task. None of it. It's about God. Throughout this powerful book of Acts, just as throughout the whole Bible, the Holy Spirit makes it exceedingly clear 
that he does not rely on the qualifications of men or on the expectations of men to accomplish his work through men and women on earth. And that should be a very great encouragement to every Christian who ever follows the lead of the Holy Spirit to do any work of ministry on Christ's behalf. God could not care less about your qualifications. He could not care less about your fame and influence among human beings. He couldn't care less about the skill set or expertise or eloquence that you bring to the table. We learned in our study of 1 Corinthians recently that Paul definitely was not an eloquent public speaker. Neither was Moses. There's a pattern here. The Holy Spirit will use anything and everything that he has made true of you to glorify himself, including the personal attributes and achievements in which you would score the lowest if compared with the people around you that he might have used instead of you. God is not helped by them, and he is not limited by them. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6 is the, is the, since I was a very young Christian, it has been the theme, the ground of any ministry that God has ever done through me. It says, but such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the exact same thing that liberates and equips every single person in this room that knows Jesus to be miraculously used by God, to accomplish eternally valuable things. It has nothing to do with what you bring to the table, ever. That's very liberating, isn't it? It also means we don't have any excuse for sitting around. All right, now let's look at this intriguing confrontation between Paul and Bar-Jesus. There's much that we need to learn from Paul's wonderfully gentle and tolerant response to this wayward man. That's supposed to be a laugh line, guys. <laughs> Paul said to Paul said to, to him, you know, Bar-Jesus, I understand that each of us has to follow his own truth, and I certainly wouldn't want to come across as closed-minded toward your truth, you know, maybe you could just hear me out for a minute, and, and then we can, we can be friends. No, that's not how the conversation went. It wasn't a conversation. It was a decree. Did you notice, by the way, that Bar-Jesus never got a word in? It was a decree by Paul speaking on behalf of the judge of all mankind, whom this man had determined to oppose. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what did we say early on? What does it mean when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? Control. It means they are under the Spirit's control. They have, they're yielded to God, and now the Spirit has taken over, and now he's doing, he's doing what he intends to do through them. Okay, 
Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon Bar-Jesus, and he said to him, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Paul told this man whose name means son of Yahweh saves that he was in reality a son of the devil, and he was an enemy of all unrighteousness. How's that for diplomacy? He also made it clear that this man was the antithesis of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came to fulfill God's command through Isaiah to make straight the way of the Lord, to pave the way for men's hearts to be prepared, looking forward to the one true Savior of sinners, the long-promised King of Kings. But this man's Satan-directed mission was to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord, to make it as hard as possible for Sergius Paulus or anyone else to pay any attention to Jesus. After declaring God's uncompromising indictment against Bar-Jesus, Paul then announced God's punishment against this enemy of Christ. He said, now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now, considering that the Old Testament sentence for a Jew found to be a false prophet was for the whole community of God to take him outside the camp and stone him to death, I'd say this, got, this man got off pretty easy, at least in the near term. Of course, if he persisted in his opposition of and rejection of Christ, the judgment he eventually faced was infinitely worse than this one, than, than being struck blind for a while. But brothers and sisters, I am convinced that we would be misreading Paul's heart and the heart of God here if we concluded that Paul desired the eternal destruction of this Jew who had been so devoted to keeping another man from coming to faith in Christ. After all, wasn't that once a very fitting description of Paul himself? There was quite possibly never an opponent of Christ on this earth as devoted to his work as Saul of Tarsus had been before Jesus took him over. And exactly how had Jesus laid hold of him? Back to that in a second. Now, I believe that at the same time that Paul's words and actions here are filled with righteous indignation and judgment on Christ's behalf. They are also filled with grace on Christ's behalf. And here's why. Consider this. Did Paul tell Bar-Jesus that he would remain blind for the rest of his earthly life? No. He said, you will be blind for a time. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 6, God, through the prophet Elisha, temporarily struck the entire Syrian army blind, but not to lead them into a destructive judgment. Elisha escorted that blinded army right into the stronghold of their enemy, the king of Israel. But when the king of Israel asked Elisha if he should kill them all the same way they had intended to kill Elisha, Elisha instructed the king instead to prepare a feast for them, to feed them, and to send them back home to Syria safe and unharmed. That was amazing and entirely unexpected grace. I would be very surprised if we don't see some of those Syrian soldiers in the kingdom of Jesus. 
But even more to the point, what happened with Paul when he was still Saul of Tarsus after Jesus temporarily blinded him on the road to Damascus? Jesus blinded him so that he would finally truly see. And the outcome of that encounter with the risen Christ that dropped Saul to the ground trembling and blinded him for three days was the very greatest thing that ever happened to Saul. He was brought out of eternal darkness into everlasting light and life purely by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. He didn't have anything to say about it except, okay. <laughs> Verse 12 concludes this episode with a statement that we must not miss. And I'm going to give you my translation here because the order of the wording is important. The order of the wording in the original is important, as are the specific words used. Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. That's really important. See, it wasn't the sign, the miracle of the blinding of Bar-Jesus that astonished Sergius Paulus and pierced his heart so that he came to trust in Jesus. It was the teaching of the Lord. Now, does the phrase, the teaching of the Lord here, refer to the teaching about Christ, as many of your translations reflect, or does it refer to Christ's teaching? My answer is yes. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul makes it crystal clear that his gospel is Christ's gospel. He said, if anyone comes to you bearing any other gospel than the one that you heard from me, he's accursed. See, Paul didn't get that gospel from men. He got it from the resurrected Jesus. The gospel, according to Jesus, is not limited to red-letter passages of the four books that we call the gospel accounts in the New Testament. The gospel, according to Jesus, is the message of the long-promised Messiah and Savior of sinners that is found in both testaments of the Bible that includes the teaching proclaimed by Jesus during his earthly ministry and it includes the Old Testament declarations found in countless messianic passages like Isaiah 9 and 49 and 53 and Jeremiah 31 and 32 and 33 and Zechariah 3 and 6 and Micah 5 and many others. And it includes the teaching that is the constant, constant focus of the New Testament epistles. When you and I proclaim the Bible's entire witness concerning Jesus the Christ or any part of it, that which we are proclaiming is Christ's teaching, the word of Christ. We're speaking for him because we know what he has told us. It's right here for all of us. And if it's anything else, guys, we need to sit down and shut up. In chapter 2, bear with me a little longer. In chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it was not the miracle of the tongues that pierced 3,000 souls to the heart and brought them to faith. It was explicitly in that passage the word that Peter preached. It was the word 
concerning and the word of Jesus, the long-promised, crucified, resurrected, ascended Christ that those people heard preached through Peter, that's how the Holy Spirit gave life to 3,000 people. We have what we need, beloved, to be used by God to draw lost souls out of eternal darkness and into the light of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We have what we need. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to give to send, and we have the word of the cross that he has commanded and empowered us to proclaim and that God has very clearly revealed. We preach, he saves. Through continual prayerful dependence on him, we preach the truth in love, and we watch God do the saving. He convicts, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces lost sinners of the truth, and those lost sinners whom he has made primed and ready to hear are all around us every day. To do our part as his instruments, we must have his word richly dwelling in our hearts not merely as hearers, but as doers and proclaimers. We are called to proclaim the, word, the, the truth, and we are called to adorn the truth with lives that match up to it. All right, um, this is the wrap-up. What we find in these verses at this very important and pivotal juncture in the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the world is the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. Again, just before Jesus ascended to his rightful place of glory at his Father's right hand, he told his faithful disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall, not you might, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, part of the earth. And that, guys, that, exactly that, is what we've been watching the Holy Spirit do throughout this book so far, and that's what he's going to continue to do in the rest of the book. Why does that matter? It matters because in spite of the militant opposition by the Jewish leadership and the Jewish population in Jerusalem against the gospel preached by Peter, in spite of the harsh and murderous persecution of believers at the hands of Saul of Tarsus before his conversion, in spite of the widespread skepticism and even the opposition against the apostolic calling of the Apostle Paul after he was converted, the agenda of Jesus, the assignment of Jesus for his church has continued undeterred because it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world through the church. All of this matters very, very much right now, just as it mattered to that first generation of believers. This is God doing exactly what he promised. And guys, that's what God always does. He does exactly what he promised. Does that matter to you? Yeah. See, this is the same God who says to every one of his adopted children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is the same God who says, I will perfect what I started in you. The same God who says to you, no created thing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
This is the God who promised us that he will soon return to claim his bride. Jesus will soon return to claim his bride, his church, and to bring us into the place that Jesus went to prepare so that he could dwell there. Our triune God would dwell in that place with us, together with one another, for all eternity. It matters that God keeps his promises. The church's assignment right now is the same as it was in the book of Acts, to seek and save the lost by being Christ's witnesses to all mankind. Right here where we live and in every place on earth. The church's enablement to keep that assignment is exactly the same as it was in the book of Acts. The indwelling Holy Spirit, the saving word of Christ, and our utter dependence on God. That's what we've got. And guys, that is all that we will ever need. So let's press on. Loving Father, we thank you for this, uh, this book. It is, it is such a great and, and timeless and, and important reminder to us of our calling and of our power to keep that calling. The, the, very, the very person of the Holy Spirit living in us Father, make us faithful ambassadors who boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus no matter what. Fill your kingdom through this body of believers along with all the rest of your church in the world. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.